This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For the last year, ride-hailing service Uber had been prevented from operating in London, but a court case win has given them a probationary 15-month license. The license came after two days of apologies and admissions of past misdeeds, as well as stating that its corporate culture had in fact changed. Uber's license had not been renewed by the regulator a year ago, Transport for London. To discuss the impact of this for Uber, we are joined by John Paul McDuffie, management professor here at the Wharton School and director on the program on uh, vehicle and mobility innovation. John Paul, great to have you with us. Thanks. Good to be here. So give us your sense of the impact of this decision for Uber. It's obviously a positive that gets them back uh, on the market in London. Yeah, it's it's huge, I think. Uh, London's one of their biggest markets. Uh, this, you know, refusing to renew their license was one of their first major setbacks in dealing with regulators in different cities. And to have this uh, reversed is a vote of confidence in the new CEO and his efforts to convince the world that Uber has changed. Well, you mentioned the CEO, uh, Dara Khosrowshahi. What impact has he had? Uh, It seems like uh, that it's not just this court that believes that he is doing a pretty good job right now. Yeah, you know, he, I think, understood how important the London situation was. He flew immediately, very soon after he was named uh, to the position to London to to speak to the Transfer for London folks, and uh, right away sounded, a, you know, a, a, a tone of, uh, we made mistakes in the past, we are taking this very seriously, we are going to change. They made changes in personnel. They've agreed to this short license, only 15 months. They've agreed to audits every six months. So, um, you know, I, I, from what we hear from the outside on a variety of fronts, uh, he's making some big changes. So what is really the test now for Uber? I mean, obviously they have had – this is a company that has had a lot of uh, black eyes over the last few years. Obviously that was the previous uh, leadership that uh, really saw a lot of that. Is it just as simple in your mind uh, of proving that they can that they can do these things in a proper manner? Part of it I would think is also their hiring practices as well. Yes, I mean, the you know, the judge in charge of the case – said right away she wanted to be sure that this was not just a kind of smokescreen to say we've changed in order to get the license and then not really changing. Um, She noted that there hadn't been uh, complete change in charge of London, uh, but they have hired some folks uh, with a lot of credibility in England as part of an oversight committee, and those folks were saying, uh, yes, we've seen big changes. That seemed to help uh, convince the judge. You know, one of the big complaints was um, the number of drivers who were found to uh, have had criminal records, the complaints against drivers for um, sexual harassment and other kinds of things, and Uber was uh, not doing the background checks the way they said, and they weren't turning over the information about these charges to the police. So they've agreed to a set of changes that will get that information rapidly to the police in case of any concerns to change the background pattern. That's probably the biggest uh, kind of hot-button issue for the public and for Transport of London. Uh, But the other thing is going to be just how cooperative they are now with the regulators with these audits 
you know, the, the Uber uh, philosophy in the past was that regulators were only out to protect the existing taxi industry, and therefore they were essentially the enemy to be ignored or to be overcome by any means. And they had this gray ball software, which was there to explicitly fool uh, regulators to get give them inaccurate data about what was actually going on. So, you know, the, the monitors will have a chance to see on an ongoing basis whether they feel the Uber stance towards regulation has, in fact, changed. John Paul McDuffie joining us here from the uh, Wharton School. We're talking about Uber winning their case in London, which allows them to have a 15-month probationary license to get them uh, back on the streets. Your comments at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Part of this also, from what I, I read also, is the hiring that uh, that Uber did in terms of who will be running the UK operations and some belief that these are the right people to be doing that. Although there was also an admission that some of the people that were involved in some of the mistakes prior are still working with Uber. So there, there's a little bit of a, you know, a dynamic here that needs to be, to be figured out. Yeah. And I, I think when you have people who were in leadership in the past, when some of these uh, bad decisions were made, you have to ask how much has shifted within the company to change their likely behavior. Um, you know, Uber has, in other cases, you know, said some nice things in order to get past trouble spots, and then they've more or less persisted in some of their basic uh, attitudes. So, you know, it, it's quite interesting to see what the mayor of London is saying about this decision. He fully supported the denial of the license. He argued back against people who said this is an anti-business move, this is really bad for the city. Um, he's got a nice op-ed in The Independent where he says, look, this proves we were right. Uber in court said um, we completely acknowledge the validity of uh, Transport for London um, not renewing our license earlier. We made lots of mistakes, and we're agreeing to all these new conditions. So his argument is Uber has um, now changed what they're saying they will do with our city, that's going to embolden other cities to request the same kinds of conditions, and it may really permanently shift the relationship between Uber and cities around the world. How, how does this how does this reaction, or I should say this uh, case, uh, uh, play out in terms of the global spectrum? Because Uber is, I mean, it, it's certainly not just London where we have seen issues with, with Uber in the past. It, it has been around the, around the world. Sure, and you know there are cities that uh, actually actively banned Uber, and Uber had to withdraw. Uh, Austin, Texas, is one that comes into mind. I think Portland, Oregon. Um, I have to would have to update that. Um, Vancouver, in British Columbia, and many other cities where there have been lots of protests. Uh, Uber is not in Japan at all yet. So, um, oh wait a minute, no, Uber is not in Tokyo. Uber is in parts of Japan, but it has not cracked Tokyo. So, uh, you know, a lot of people will be watching this. I imagine Uber will be going back to some of these places and saying, uh, look at what we've worked out in London. We right. can work out good conditions with you as well. The other interesting global move, of course, for Uber is that they've pulled out of certain countries completely where there was a local, you know, ride-hailing company that was a very effective competitor. And what they've often done with backing from some of their uh, venture capitalists is to take a big stake in the local 
competitors so that they still reap some of the benefits of that market growing. Interestingly, interestingly, while Uber has clearly hoped to get into monopoly or near-monopoly positions in a lot of its markets, um, it may be these places where they pulled out and the local competitor is super strong and is now partly owned by Uber, where you get closer to monopoly conditions. But isn't it also that don't they have to, to a degree, because we know that there have been issues with Uber in some of these places where they aren't currently right now, and as you said, they may go back to try and see if they can get some access to that market, it's still going to have to be, okay, prove it to us, like they're having to do in London. They they still, to get the next uh, contract in London, to get the next year license, they have to prove over the next 15 months that they can do these operations without issue. Yeah, no, absolutely right. And, and that's much easier said than done. Uh, you know, a company like Lyft has gained tremendous market share in the U.S., uh, by saying, hey, we're not Uber. We uh, treat our drivers better. We treat our customers better. We're not deceptive when we deal with cities. You know, they haven't agreed to every single thing that cities have asked them. Um, In some ways, they they share a stance of protesting certain kinds of restrictions. But they have very cleverly positioned themselves as the non-Uber. So they will continue to do that, and they'll probably continue to say, look, how can you know that Uber is, in fact, changing? Um, They'll say this to regulators. They'll say it to customers. Um, Come with us. The the admissions that they made, though, of the mistakes is interesting because we see that uh, in several cases in business these days. And it, it's it's a little bit of a mea culpa. You know, companies are willing to say, yes, we screwed up and we're going to try and fix things if we can. There's a variety of companies that we've talked about here in the U.S. Uh, over the last uh, couple of years that have that have kind of fallen into that category. From from your background, uh, is that the best way that that Uber was going to be able to handle this, to, to make these statements in court and, and, and apologize straight out? I think that that them being willing to say that the failure to renew back in September by Transport for London was completely valid and legitimate was uh, was really pretty big. Um, I mean, they also said that they agree that they made a bunch of mistakes, but um, acknowledging so strongly the legitimacy of the regulator taking this stance towards them is, you know, 180 degrees uh, opposite from what Travis Kalanick, the founding CEO, uh, would have uh, taken as a position. So symbolically, I think that's very, uh, very powerful uh, because, you know, saying we'll fix the mistakes is one thing. Saying we plan to work proactively with regulators in cities to because we acknowledge them as a legitimate, you know, party for us to negotiate with, that's um, actually pretty big. And, of course, the regulators with these six-month audits and the 15-month renewal deadline, you know, coming now for the next time, um, will have a lot of chances to evaluate that. John Paul McDuffie joining us here from the Wharton School. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. It's it's also interesting, and, and maybe this wasn't the first understanding by Uber as it was developing out, but this is a company which obviously has quite the technology element to it, but it is also a company that is dealing with people. And I think it's the recognition that this is more than just the technology that that is going to be the key to success for Uber moving forward. 
Yeah, and you know, of course, the the CEO was trying to do a reset in a number of ways. But the other things to remember is that um, the original, you know, Travis Kalanick, the founding CEO, uh, said several times that they were going to push very rapidly towards driverless Ubers, uh, and that this was a kind of existential issue for them, implying that they really couldn't expect to be successful with human drivers and. You know, some of his stance towards drivers and even a a kind of viral video that showed him arguing with a driver who tried to engage him with a few concerns suggested, you know, that that he saw drivers as a necessary but annoying, um, you know, temporary fact (laughs) of his business model. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the driverless program of Uber, where they poached a bunch of folks from Carnegie Mellon, has not made unusual fast progress. You know, they're making some progress, but they're by no means the leaders. Uber had this fatal accident in Phoenix. They had moved their testing of some of their driverless vehicles to Phoenix from San Francisco when San Francisco banned them for testing without a license. Then in Phoenix, there was a a fatal accident where a woman pedestrian with a bicycle was hit by a car that had an Uber test driver behind the wheel whose job was to make sure that things like that didn't happen. So the test driver failed, the technology on the car failed. There's some evidence that the driver was watching an episode of The Voice on her phone <laughs> yeah. uh, when yeah. the accident happened. So, you know, Uber immediately uh, put kind of a halt on that testing program. It certainly calls into question the validity of their claim that they're very rapidly going to move beyond drivers to this driverless era. And probably that means the CEO is a lot more focused on strengthening the relationship with drivers, which is going to be the basis of their business model for quite a while. Which is interesting, considering the fact that that seemingly, as you just said, Uber wants to and so many other uh, kind of companies that are in the entity of the of the auto industry, they want to push forward the driverless segment. And, and it just, one, it's not ready now. And two, the question is whether or not we will get to that point even the next 30, 40, or 50 years at this at this rate with some of the issues that, that continue to pop up from time to time? Yeah, I mean, we're going to see more and more testing. The testing is going to be valuable for improving the algorithms, for getting all of us more used to this new technology. Uh, you know, humans kill a lot of humans driving cars, yeah. so, you know, that's the backdrop for this. It's not as if any time... A uh, driverless car uh, hits somebody. That's uh, a terrible new development. Um, we all know that if we can get humans out of the business of driving, it's probably going to be great for for public safety. But but it's going to be s- slow. There'll be conditions around these tests. You know, the Phoenix tests were in the, in a suburb where the streets were wide, the streets were flat. There's no rain. There's no fog. Kind of perfect conditions. Um, there'll be geographic kind of conditions. Geofencing is a term you'll hear where, you know, it'll be allowed in some places but but not in others in order to control the parameters that within which the algorithms operate. So, you know, I, I think it's true that things are moving fast and we're going to see lots more testing. I think it's also true that we're a long, long way from seeing a 100% driverless system. And, and yeah, probably in decades more than in years. And, and where this case is specific, it, it appears from some of the comments after 
uh, the decision was rendered by the judge that the transport for London still has some concerns about Uber. I don't think uh, anybody would expect them not to, considering the fact that they, you know, they weren't in favor of uh, of bringing forth even this uh, this uh, probationary license originally. Uh, do you do they do you think that they have reason to still be that skeptical of Uber? Well, look, I think uh, a stance of, um, you know, I don't know whether trust but verify is the right term or uh, grant the license and then and then verify does does seem like the right stance. Um, we are our this program on vehicle mobility innovation that I run. We had a conference in London at the London Business School on new mobility ecosystems in the fall. And we had a guy from a very senior leader from Transport of London. And he talked about their frustration with a lot of startups that think that their business model can be tested fully without paying any attention to regulations to the use of public streets. He talked about some electric bike um, and and one-way bike uh, rental companies that just flooded the streets of London you know, with here they appear, and there you can rent them cheaply, and you can leave them anywhere, and it was a total mess, and it was dangerous, and it yeah. was blocking sidewalks, and so they actually, after a few months, they actively banned that company, and he said, "Look, we're not anti-business, but we also don't think that it's fair for a startup to completely ignore the cost to the public of using this public space in a way that's that's detrimental," and then they scream you know, anti-business whenever we try to say that they need to change their behaviors. So, you know, this is playing out in a lot of places around the world. E-scooters are the new development in the U.S. that are really taking off. And um, I think this, uh, the Uber lessons will be passed on to many startups that realize that the, maybe this era, this wild west of being able to just jump in and operate completely flaunting regulation is perhaps uh, passing. The the that new chairperson uh, in the UK, uh, Laurel Powers Freeling for for Uber, she had made the statement that corporate change is, is a quote, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah, uh, she's referring obviously to you need to have it a, a a culture that is there full time, and you just can't expect it to happen overnight. That to me, I think, is, is probably part of the reason why the uh, the transport for London is still concerned is that. Because of all the things that they have that have happened, they probably expected it to be immediate change, immediate impact right off the top. Yeah, I mean they're not going to be. Uh, I think that's an accurate stance about how cultures change in organizations. Um, they're not going to be patient with Uber, uh, given the length of time that culture change may take. I think it's the reason for insisting on these six-month audits. I mean, Uber hasn't wanted to give cities, a lot of the information cities have asked for. Um, you know, in fact, Pittsburgh was one of the first uh, cities to partner with Uber for some of their driverless car tests, and Pittsburgh was super excited about it at first. And then they just completely soured on Uber because Uber wouldn't give them any data when Pittsburgh wanted to apply for some grant that was going to be, you know, for being an innovative transport city. Uber refused to help them with it. I mean, they just turned around and were completely ungrateful and slammed the door every time the city asked for something. So yeah. they managed to sour a very promising relationship uh, in, in that case. You know, this, this monitoring thing also reminds me of the lawsuit that uh, Uber settled with Waymo over that uh, accusation of 
of you know stealing the employee that stole a lot of Waymo uh, proprietary information about LiDAR, which is a key technology. Google slash Waymo settled with Uber for uh, a lower financial amount, which made some people think that their case wasn't as strong. But if you look at the details, what they got for that lower financial settlement was an agreement to be able to monitor Uber's LiDAR development for the next X years. Right. And I think, you know, yeah. rather than get the money, they wanted to keep a very close eye on Uber and make sure that they actually weren't continuing to use that proprietary, uh, you know, LiDAR design. So, uh, you know, closely monitoring Uber is, I think, what a lot of people are going to be doing. And these uh, these victories are probably not going to make anyone relax that watchdog stance. John Paul McDuffie joining us from the Wharton School, uh, director of the program on vehicle and mobility innovation. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Realistically, though, I mean, Uber, it's success, its use rate here in the United States, even with all of these issues, remains very high at this point. It's almost like people feel like if it doesn't happen to them or it doesn't happen in their neighborhood, then it really doesn't impact them and it shouldn't change their mindset on whether or not to use Uber or not. Yeah. No, I mean, the the customer reaction on these things is is interesting because that's probably what would send the biggest uh, signal to Uber. I mean, I know some people who have deleted their Uber account and only use Lyft, and uh, they tell me that that doesn't really affect them much except in a city that doesn't have Lyft at all. Uh, most of those cities still have some competitors, so if they're prepared to sign up for a new service. Um, but I know plenty of others who just feel like, well, Uber's so convenient and I'm so used to it, and and you know maybe they'll uh, they'll they just kind of watch the news and say, well, they're they're getting better. Um, you know, overall, Uber is still not profitable. They will tell you that they are profitable in certain cities and that those are the cities where they've been operating the longest. And so the clear implication is give us time and we're going to be profitable everywhere. These sales of uh, or getting, getting out of countries where they weren't doing so well has been um, generally praised by investors as a smart move, particularly with this taking a stake in the local competitor that remains. So, you know, I, th- I think for a lot of the people who have propelled Uber forward with uh, all the venture capital investing, the real test will simply be, do they actually start making money in the ways that were promised? Um, I personally don't expect that this is going to turn out to be a winner-take-all kind of, of, of service. Um, the network effects are obviously strong, but it's clearly not rocket science to start a program uh, or an application like this because you see all these successful competitors. So I, I think we end up with probably, you know, oligopolies with a, a two, two to three um, strong competitors in most markets. Uh, you know, if, if Uber investors were counting on them having monopoly power to completely set prices uh, wherever they needed to be to be profitable, uh, I think they'll be disappointed with that. Right. But um, in terms of Uber surviving, I think the London uh, experience also shows us that you know, when you have built that strong a base of riders who are have now started to rely on Uber for part of their transportation, 
you can't so easily ignore that. Uh, you might say it's a, a bit of indication of Travis Kalanick's original insight that if you you know rush in and ignore regulation and build a customer base, that actually does uh, give you a kind of you know safety net against later trouble. John Paul, as always, great talking with you. Thank you very much for joining us today. All the best. My pleasure. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. John Paul McDuffie, management professor here at the Wharton School and also director of the program on vehicle and mobility innovation. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.